0: Please join me in prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Two weeks ago, as Rebecca reminded us, Ron began our sermon series on the book of Colossians. And I hope all of you have been engaging in that text often throughout the weeks. It is a short but intense and good book. The world in which Paul lived when he wrote this book was a world inhabited by a small gathering of believers in Colossa, which was a world dominated by the Roman Empire And Ron asked us a number of questions in his sermon that we're hoping to address throughout the entire series. And these are just a couple of them. So if you missed it, you can remember, you can be reminded of what was said. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the 21st century United States? What does it mean to be a Christian in the most powerful nation on earth? Now, we are asking these questions throughout this month, not as an act of condemnation or even judgment on others. But we are asking so that we can engage in healthy discussion, corporate discernment that hopefully will lead us as a body of believers to a serious evaluation of what it means to be followers of Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but as a result of this sermon series, I have been thinking a lot more about church a lot more about life over the past few weeks. And I've started looking at things in a whole new different way. Let me tell you a few of the ways in which I've started behaving differently. A few weeks ago, before the sermon series began, I proudly bought this shirt at Target. I was really excited, it was $5. In fact, I admit I bought two, one in light blue as well. But as a result of the series, when I got home the other day, I thought, I wonder where this $5 shirt is made. And I looked, it's made in Guatemala. And I thought, what kind of working conditions must those people in Guatemala be having if I can be buying a t shirt for $5? Some people may say, hey, look on the bright side. At least we're giving them jobs, right? And gasoline. I know we've all been trying to cut back on gasoline with the high prices and the effects it's having on us. But instead of looking at it as a way of saving on my personal budget, I thought of it more in how am I using gasoline that's showing the world how we live as consumers of so much gasoline compared to the rest of the world. And so I tried to cut back even more. Three days this week, I was able to go without using my car at all. And I'm challenging myself every week to try to increase that. I've also watched the economy falter a lot, especially this last week, with the stock market being compared to that of around the time of the Great Depression. And I've thought about that in new ways. And then need I remind you that we have a presidential election going on. And I have tried really hard to listen to both sides and both sides fight back and forth with words and messages to the point that I'm actually, to the point that I don't even wanna listen to any messages anymore because I'm wondering where truth is in all of this. And then there's the war on terrorism that pervades our culture every day. And I keep wondering, how will we know when this war is won? Who will walk out with the white surrender flags? Will the terrorists? Will the United States? Will it ever be over? All of this comes down to what I believe about this world. How do I live with the messages, the realities, the squeeze on the economy that I experience every time I even just go grocery shopping, the questions, questions of sexism, racism, and ageism that is happening in the presidential race. And I try to break through the clouds of false hope, the bias, the advantages, the abundance, the choices, and I try to figure out what exactly it means to live in this country, this powerful nation, this nation that spends more money on its military than the next top 42 countries put together. This country, what some might call the empire, What does it mean to live here, to be a citizen in the United States? And yet I am torn as a Christian living in this country as a white middle-class educated woman. I feel all around me the realities and the comforts of empire living. I don't want a terrorist attack to happen to Lancaster or any other place in my homeland or in the world for that matter. Yes, I would very much like to pay less for my gasoline and my groceries and my utilities. I'm noticing the crunch on my budget. And I like being able to buy cheap clothing. I kind of get excited about it sometimes. And I like the security of knowing that I live in the wealthiest country in the world. And as a middle class person in this country, I am pretty comfortable and I have it pretty, pretty well. So there is a tension that I'm feeling every day this month, every day between the ways of the world and the ways of Christ. And while I've known that that tension has always existed, the past few weeks, as I've been reading the book of Colossians every day, has really raised my consciousness in new ways. Is the empire getting to me? Is the force of the empire getting stronger on everyone these past few days, or am I just noticing it in new ways? Or is the empire striking back at me in the past couple of weeks because of my closer examination? Well, thank goodness for the, for Advil, because I had to take it a few times this week to help figure out all of this tension that I have been experiencing, and that's for, that's truth. And I'm glad I have easy access to Advil. But instead of taking more Advil, I should have just looked more closely to the book of Colossians. And I hope you have your Bibles with you. You should know that by now when I preach. That uh, Colossians 2, please turn to it if you have your Bibles. And for those of you who don't, listen to these words of Colossians 2 that David read for us at the very beginning of the chapter. Words of Paul. For I want you to know how much I am struggling for you. Paul himself realized the tension. Paul himself knew how much we struggled. And I was comforted again and again when I read that verse this week, that this isn't easy, folks. Paul realized how hard it was. And here are a few of the w- more ways that I struggled with the idea of empire. It has been just over four weeks that the Olympics have finished. And a part of me Part of my very competitive athletic nature really misses them. I loved being able to go home at any hour of the day and turn on the TV and watch the competitiveness of different countries and different sports and oftentimes in sports that we don't normally get to see on TV. And I found myself watching the medal count, even on my computer, seeing how many gold and silver and bronze the U.S. was winning compared to China or the other countries. And I found myself cheering for the United States, angry when those Chinese divers once again walked away with the gold in the diving competitions, and definitely wondering if those Chinese gymnasts were really 16 years old. And I was delighted when Michael Phelps won his eighth gold medal. Those two weeks were great. But during the Olympics, actually, we had one of those September worship planning meetings. I think it was the same meeting that we convinced Rebecca to share her testimony. And I was watching the clock because I needed to get home because Michael was swimming that evening. And then I started thinking, was my nationalism getting the better of me? Or is it okay to cheer for my country folk? What's wrong with wanting Sean Johnson to do well on the gymnastics floor? Or for hoping that Dara Torres will demonstrate that a 41-year-old woman can swim just as well as someone half her age? Well, as I said, Target is a place that I frequently shop. And I thought about a story that I hadn't thought about for quite some time recently. I was at Target one day a while ago. And many of you who frequent Target know that when you walk in the door, there are these bins of just $1 items that totally suck me in every time. And I look through them, and one time I walked in, and there were these slippers available for $1, 50 cents each. And I thought, those are the perfect slippers that I need to put in my suitcase so that when I travel, I have slippers, but they're not nearly as bulky as the ones that I have. And so I snatched them up, they were in a little package and I put them on, and I began to go throughout the rest of the store and I was doing my normal shopping and doing my things and I had all my items and I walked up to the counter and I put my things down, I, the clerk cashed me out, I paid my bill and I walked out to the car and as I was unlocking my car door and putting my bags in, I looked and I saw that I still had the slippers under my arm this whole time. And neither I nor the cashier obviously noticed that I had walked out without paying for my $1 slippers. And I thought to myself, well, the amount of money I spend at Target, surely they can at least owe me a pair of $1 slippers. Or do I go back in and confess my shoplifting? And a third reflection this week on the economy. This week has been a whirlwind of activity. Rumors that this is equivalent to the depression have highlighted the news every day. And I double checked, I admit, to make sure that all of my accounts were in FDIC insured. And I, no, I didn't tuck any money under my mattress, but I thought about it. And this week we saw how much the power of the United States influences the world economy if you watch the Asian markets go up and go down, depending upon how AIG's insurances were doing and whether the government was going to stop in, it was phenomenal. But my money was safe. I'm able to pay my mortgage. I haven't spent beyond my means. I'm okay. So what is my responsibility as a member of this empire, as a follower of Jesus Christ, can I help it that I have been financially wise and spent appropriately? I fear this week as I reflected on all of these things that I too get caught up in the reality of empire living. Does my lack of compassion on others less fortunate than me? My questions about justice and fairness and my desire to see those who are like me secede mean I am evil and a sinner? I do know that it means I need to seriously look at the culture in which I live and how I want to respond to the many ideologies and philosophies I hear and live in all around me. And some of these things, I believe, are the deceptive philosophies that Paul discusses in chapter 2. Perhaps in and of themselves, all of these things that I just talked about are minimal. The dollar slippers, the $5 shirts, the small amount of money that I have compared to the rest of the world... But these are just a smattering of the many things that bombard our lives every day. These are just a few of the many things I could have chosen to talk about. And the ways that we see the world around us, the greed, the nationalism, the economic power that pervades our everyday life, are these things becoming so ingrained in us that we don't even realize how much they are prevalent in our lives and how much the empire is influencing us? And then one day I read verse 20 from Colossians 2. If with Christ you died to baptism, through baptism, as was said earlier, to the elemental spirits of the universe, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? In one of my very first classes in seminary a number of years ago, we had to go around the room and introduce ourselves and say our names and where we lived and what degree we were seeking. And I remember I was very nervous. It was one of my very, very first classes. And there was a man there, and he introduced himself. He was middle-aged, and he said, My name is Thomas Martin. I live in Goshen, but my home is not of this world. And I looked at him, and I thought, Oh, my goodness, is everybody in seminary that serious? And I thought, oh my, I didn't know what to do with that. The challenge issued in Colossians is one that is still very present today. This is the challenge. Is this proclamation that Paul says about Christ's death a metaphor by which we today are prepared to live? Do we believe that this answer to the power of evil is really sufficient? For all readers of Colossians, all of us, as well as the the ones back to whom Paul was writing, a major test of authentic adherence to the gospel and to the confession of Christ as Lord is whether we are convinced enough of the sufficiency of God's action in the crucified Jesus to gamble our lives on the paradoxical power of the way of the cross, rather than making compromises with other powers. Paul says that we make sure that we do not participate in these things through deceptive philosophies. And the way that we do it is through our baptism. Our baptism. Colossians 2 says, verses 9 through 15, there's certain excerpts about baptism. In baptism, we die to the ways of sin and are raised to a new life through our union with Christ. Baptism in and of itself does not make a person Christian. We know that. As Anabaptists, when we are, at, when we are baptized, we are publicly announcing to everybody looking on our commitment to Jesus Christ. And our allegiance to only one God, our decision to follow Jesus and to receive baptism is personal, but it is definitely not private. Now, I wonder, and I would like a show of hands, how many of you actually remember the day you were baptized and the details surrounding that? Who baptized you, where you were? Maybe how many of you even remember the date of your baptism? Raise your hand if you can look around to see how many hands are raised. I can't. I, know, I don't know the date. I remember where it was and who baptized me, but I don't know the day. I do remember the dress I was wearing. I think I bought it at Target. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> the only reason I remember the dress is because there's a photo of it. I would like you to think about your baptism and anything that you can remember about it. And I wonder... If any of you can remember the words to which you committed in that baptism, can anybody recite the vows to which they committed to their, on their baptism day to me? Yeah, I heard a yes. I have it right here. I ask forgiveness of my sin and I promise to follow Christ and I renounce the devil. Okay. Okay uh, Rose is pretty good. She's now I won't even ask her if she, if she lives that every day, but, but I, I, Rose is pretty, let me, let me recite to you the questions that most likely you were asked if you were baptized in a Mennonite church. Do you renounce the evil powers of this world and turn to Jesus Christ as your savior? Do you put your trust in his grace and love and promise to obey him as your Lord? Do you believe in God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth? In Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. Do you accept the word of God as guide and authority for your life? Are you reading the Bible and accepting it? Are you willing to give and receive counsel in the congregation? And are you ready to participate in the mission of the church? Those are powerful questions and things we need to think about seriously before we answer them. Some of you may receive the Mennonite, and earlier this week I actually was online reading it before it was published. But John D. Roth has an article in this copy of the Mennonite, this issue that I highly encourage you to read if you haven't. It actually talks about baptism and the church today. And he writes, our emphasis on the importance of individual choice in baptism captures a crucial aspect of what it means to follow Jesus. God does not coerce belief. Accepting God's offer of forgiveness and becoming a disciple of Jesus is a genuine decision. But in our contemporary Western context, our emphasis on the need to say yes to God's gift of grace can easily be confused with the individualism and single-minded pursuit of liberty that defines modern consumerism and liberal democracy. In the Anabaptist understanding, baptism by consent is always a public statement of allegiance, a profession of loyalty to Christ and to the church, not an assertion of individual rights. It goes counter to the empire While our baptism is something that we individually choose and hopefully weren't pushed into or eventually will be forced into, Roth feels as though the focus of this decision within the community and the church has been taken far too lightly. It is, after all, the most important decision of our lives. To pledge our allegiance to Christ and to the church above all else. Why have we forgotten What we say in that pledge, and yet many of you, I'm sure, could recite the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Our baptism isn't merely a splashing on of water. In it, Ross says, we have been marked by the cross and claimed by Christ. We have been tattooed by our baptism in a way that changes us forever. And it affects, or at least it should affect, how we live today in the empire And that's what Colossians 2 is talking about. Paul is reminding us to take those vows of our baptism seriously. Walsh and Kiesmott, in the book that Ron referred to a couple weeks ago, Colossians Remix, said, If with Christ you died in baptism, why do you submit to the world's regulations to consume as if there were no tomorrow? To live as if community were an impediment to personal fulfillment. To live as if everything were disposable, including relationships, people in enemy countries, and the environment. Why do you allow this deceitful vision to still have a hold on you? So we need to be strongly committed to our baptismal vows. We need to remember that our identity as baptized believers is a lifelong commitment that ebbs and flows It is a commitment which at times we need to reevaluate and recommit to every day of our lives. My older brother got married when he was 29 or 30, I believe, and he had been dating his future wife for a little while, a number of years, and we were assuming that this would be the one. But I remember one day, and I may have even shared the story a little bit with you once before, but one day, My dad and brother and I were driving along in the car, just the three of us. And my brother turned to my dad and he said, Dad, how do you do it? How do you make a lifelong commitment to one person and know that you're going to be able to keep that commitment forever? And my dad turned to him and he said, and of course my ears were perked up in the back, imagining, thinking what a good question it was. And my dad who my parents had been married 46 years and actually are here today. I warned them that this story was coming. My dad turned to my brother and said, there are days that I do not love your mother, but those are the days that I go back on the commitment that I made to her many, many years ago. Those are the days that I remember my vows, and those are the days that I live through that commitment, knowing that, The next day, I may very much be in love with her again. Well, my brother ended up getting married, and he still is happily married. And I remember those words. They were so right on with every vow. That's what it's all about, making a vow. Making the commitment day after day to the vow, even if your feelings may have changed a little bit. And so I was in the parking lot of Target, with my slippers, trying to decide what to do. I could easily have popped in the car and driven away. Nobody would have known. Or do I go in and confess? I shut my door, and I locked the car, and I walked back into Target. I didn't bother going to the customer service desk because I thought it would be really confusing to them to explain to them how I had just shoplifted and now I'm coming back in to pay my dollar And so because I figured nobody saw me leave, probably nobody would see me walk in with the slippers. And so I walked back in with the slippers under my arm and I went to the first cashier. I put them down. I paid my dollar six and I walked out with my paid in full slippers in hand. And as I reflect now on the story of shopping at Target, I realized that what was happening was that I was getting caught up in the consumerism of this world. Target, I said, it owed me at least a pair of $1 slippers with all the with all the shopping I do for them. But is that really Christian? That is individualism mixed with consumerism at its height. And it leads us to verse 8 in Colossians 2. To see that no one takes you captive. Paul didn't want young Christians to be snatched away as characterized by by shallow and hollow and deceptive philosophy, philosophy that promises much and gives nothing, because that is dangerous. So how do we keep ourselves in check with the philosophies in life? How do we know if we are getting sucked into something that is hollow and deceptive? How do we stay committed to our baptismal vows every single day of our lives, even the days we don't feel like it? And it is here, in this place, with all of you as our community, as a community of believers. The Mennonite Minister Manual says that the living faith of the individual is expressed in the context of the community. Baptism incorporates the believer into this community of kingdom citizens, the church, there to be accountable to and for others in all matters of faith and life. And I suspect that if Paul read the Mennonite Minister's Manual, he would say, Amen. We need the community of faith to help keep us accountable to the vows we made at baptism. Now, many of you know that I work very hard at keeping my Sunday Sabbath. Now, while, of course, I work most Sundays as my job as a pastor, I have set aside different things that I do not do on Sundays. I try not to do household chores on Sundays, I do not go shopping, even on the internet. And I try to find rest when I'm not working at my job. But last Sunday evening, I confess I broke my Sabbath. Out of boredom, I went shopping at Kohl's. I realize as I confess the sin to you that my refusal to go shopping on Sundays, which was broken last Sunday, isn't going to make a dent in the craziness of this world and I shopped so paranoid that one of you would see me (laughs) that I didn't even enjoy it. But what this decision to do, what this decision, this commitment to just that little thing to not shop on Sundays, What it is going to do is to call me and to all of us, if that's what you choose, to evaluate my life. And in this case, my shopping habits, my issues of time, my issues of consumerism, my desire to want things at any time whenever I want them or need them. By committing myself to just one day of the week that I will not engage in the consumerism of this culture, I am recommitting myself to my dedication to let Christ rule my life. And so this church is called to be an alternative community. And there's n- nothing more off-turning to onlookers than to see us saying one thing and living another way. So if any of you saw me in Coles, that's wrong. We need to talk the talk. And it cannot be separated from walking the walk. But what it says in Colossians takes us beyond these basic assertions. It may mean many things for all of you, and our commitments may be different. It may mean not shopping on Sundays. It may be something new that I've incorporated thanks to Sue Waterfield's email reminder a few weeks ago, spending 10% of my grocery bill every time I go shopping to buy extra food for the food bank. I love that idea, Sue. Thank you for encouraging us to buy food for the food bank. The items are listed in your bulletin in case you're wondering taking public transportation multiple days of the week to cut back on gas, or as Chuck and Sue reminded us, not watching TV that advocates violence or sexual promiscuity, standing firmly against violence in this world by supporting Christian peacemaker teams or a number of other things. There was a family in my church that I grew up in who after all their children have grown up started taking in foster babies. Some would call them crack babies. And I couldn't understand why these people would, after four children had grown up and left, why they would start taking in foster babies. And so one time I asked her, because these children were high need, I said, why are you doing this? And she said, because I oppose abortion. But I can't oppose abortion until I start doing something to help those babies that are going to be living as a result of my opposition to abortion. And so she started taking in foster babies and giving them homes and loving them because she was against abortion. Now, I'm not saying whether you should be pro or against abortion, but I'm saying that you need to walk the walk of how you talk the talk. When we look at the gospel we say, but I can't do all this. I can't do everything that Jesus asked me to do. It's impossible. It's implausible. Surely Jesus didn't mean literally that we're supposed to do all of this. And yet this was one of the best quotes I found from Walsh and Kiesmott in the book Colossians Remixed. What makes an argument that is alternative to the gospel plausible, what makes the gospel possible is the implausibility of the Christian community itself. The implausibility that all of us would gather together this morning and be concerned about this topic, when in the midst of all that is going on around us, a group of people comes together and says, no, we are not going to succumb to the pressures of idolatry in this world. We're not going to shop on Sundays. We're not going to pay our military taxes. We're not going to pledge allegiance to the state over God, or we're not going to, you fill in the blank, whatever it is that you're committed to when a community that strives to embody the truth that came to save the world exists, then we begin to see how alternative views offered in the gospel really can become a reality. Living in this world isn't easy. Some people, like the Amish, our cousins of faith, have realized how challenging it is, and so they have chosen to separate themselves from the world in order to be faithful. But as Mennonites, we have chosen a different path. But we have also chosen the path to be faithful, and it's a huge undertaking, one that we took on the day of our baptism, one that we do together every week through the community of faith, helping each other and keeping each other accountable. And that is something that we need to recommit ourselves to every day of our Christian walk. Our calling is not to fix this world Our calling is to live in this world, recognizing the tension that exists and that has always existed between God's people and the empires that ruled them. We are called to be faithful in our living, to put our allegiance to Christ ahead of all others. And in the end, it is not our job to fix everything. Christ will take care of that at his return Our job is to live faithfully in active anticipation and waiting animated by that radically subversive hope we have committed ourselves to in our baptism. And so today I invite you for those of you who have been baptized to remember your baptism and the commitments that you made to Christ and to the community of believers, to pledge your allegiance to Jesus Christ above all else. Remember your baptism. Amen.